And as we make the figurative leap across the Hollywood Hills and the L.A. River, your continued donations will assist us in making what we hope will be a soft landing. Our drive continues until March 8th, and with the extra day in February, you have expanded opportunities to show your support by donating online at kpfk.org or by calling in your donation at 818-985-5735 and pressing option 2. or whatever amount fits your budget affirms your faith in the station that brings you information not easily found elsewhere and that helps your understanding of the issues of the day. Thanks for your support as you listen before you leap to KPFK 90.7 FM, Los Angeles. You're listening to KPFK. 90.7 FM in Los Angeles and on the web at kpfk.org. Pacifica Radio for all of Southern California and beyond. Get up, stand up. Stand up for your right. Get up, stand up. Stand up for your right. Well, good afternoon, good afternoon, one and all. This is Jim Lafferty, along with my co-host, Maria Hall, welcoming you to this week's edition of the Lawyers Guild Show. Yeah, I know, I've still got that little froggy in my throat. It seems to be persistent these days. A lot of people have got whatever the devil this is. Maria, you sound good, right? I hope so. (laughs) I think so. But you always sound good, too. Oh, do I? Well, it sounds funny to me. Maybe it's just the mic. Anyway. It sounds distinguished. Well, there you go. Oh, my goodness. Uh, Anyway, we've got a great show today. Let people know what it is. Um, And and by the way, although we'll only take a few minutes during the hour to, to, you know, ask people to support the station because we need their support, uh, I I think people are going to be thrilled at what we're offering as as a thank you. Anyway, go ahead and introduce our topics today, or at least our first one, and let's get going. Yes, um, thank you. And, and yes, people can go to kpfk.org or give us a call at the station to make your pledge. Um, yes, so in our first half hour, we're going to be speaking with our friend, constitutional law scholar Stephen Rohde. And he's going to be talking with us about the contours of free speech when it comes to social media and breaking down some of that Supreme Court argument we heard and maybe guessing how the Supreme Court might <laughs> rule on that on that subject. Well, and then any- in our, yes, I was going to say, in- if anyone can do it, he can do it. But go ahead. I'm sorry. Right. I know. I know. It's a, that's really breaking, breaking legal news. Um, and then in our second half hour, we're going to be speaking with Mike Farrell, president of the board of Death Penalty Focus, uh, for an update on the status of capital punishment in the southern states. There is a lot of news today on that subject. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, let's get going. Our first topic, indeed. Uh, This week, as many of our listeners, they, they stay tuned to the news, know, the U.S. Supreme Court heard four hours of arguments on the constitutionality of laws in Texas and Florida that seek to, well, greatly restrict an Internet company's rights to prevent certain viewpoints from appearing on their sites. As CNN's Financial News put the matter this, and I quote, high-stakes battle gives the nation's highest court an enormous say in how millions of Americans get their news and information, as well as whether sites like Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and TikTok should be able to make their own decisions about how to moderate spam, hate speech, and election information, close quote. Well, after I say those four hours of argument demonstrating this case, it raises some complex uh, free speech questions, which at the root raise the fundamental question of, of whether in this digital age, Internet companies are public or private communicators of speech and ideas. Certainly how the court rules in this case could affect the scope well, of Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. We'll hear more about that, which has so far been broadly interpreted to shield private websites from liability because of what content they display or remove. This case is very significant, therefore. Very important cases. More and more millions of American people obtain their news and views, well, principally, if sometimes not exclusively, 
on the Internet based on what they read or hear there. Well, who better to tackle the job of explaining this lawsuit and its implications for what Internet providers will be offering the American people in the future and the future of free speech in a broad sense, too, than our go-to expert on such matters, Stephen Rohde. Mr. Rohde is a noted constitutional scholar and activist. He's the past chair of the ACLU Foundation of Southern California, the founder and current chair of Interfaith Communities United for Justice and Peace. Steve is also the author of American Words of Freedom and the book Freedom of Assembly. Steve Rohde is also a regular contributor to the Los Angeles Review of Books and to Truth Dig. And he is a leader in the national campaign to free the imprisoned investigative journalist Julian Assange. Well, Steve Rohde, a warm welcome back to the Lawyers Guild Show, my friend. Thank you so much, uh, Jim and Maria. It's always a pleasure to be with you. I want to say at the top that uh, uh, you and I serve on the ACLU board, but Mm -hmm. uh, in this program, we're offering our own personal viewpoints. And also that I was a founder of ICUJP. Ah. Uh, it was convened by the wonderful Reverend George Regas. Of course. Of course. Good points. I, I second those points. Well, Steve, uh, the, the two state laws at issue here, Texas and Florida, uh, very similar laws. Um, and they're both quite broad in what they purport to do by way of regulating the Internet. How would you, you summarize their purported purpose or purposes? Uh, These are probably some of the most important First Amendment cases uh, to have come before the Supreme Court, uh, certainly uh, in the last few years, if not in several decades, because they really affect the uh, free speech rights of literally millions of people who use social media uh, every day or in every hour. And it came to pass on January 6th that there was an insurrection and Donald Trump's reaction to that insurrection prompted him to be removed from uh, Facebook and Twitter and other social media sites, uh, exercising their discretion under their uh, community standards and their terms of service. Um, In Texas and Florida, Uh, two uh, states uh, run by Republican legislatures and Republican governors. Both of those states passed laws which restrict what social media can do uh, in the name of moderating content. Now, throughout our conversation today, we're going to be emphasizing that these are private companies. They are private speakers. Uh, we'll talk later about the analogies to newspapers and mm. magazines that, that make edi- editorial choices a- every moment. Uh, so you, even though they are so widespread and they've become the center of the public square, as many people say, uh, they are still private companies and they set their own standards as far as uh, community standards in terms of service and what's called content moderation. Instead, the states of Texas and Florida passed laws. For example, in Texas, they passed a law that purports to prohibit large social media platforms from restricting speech based on the viewpoint of the speaker. Uh, They call it uh, censorship, but censorship for our purposes today is when the government silences a speaker, Mm -hmm. not when a private entity simply makes an editorial decision. So in Texas, one section of the law prohibited viewpoint-based, quote, censorship by users. Uh, And in another section, they required platforms to disclose how they moderate uh, content and to publish and, quote, acceptable use policy, acceptable apparently to the Republican legislature of uh, Texas. Mm -hmm. Likewise, in Florida, prompted by Governor DeSantis and the Republican legislature, they passed a separate law which prohibited deplatforming of political candidates uh, and require the disclosure of the reasons uh, for each uh, deplatforming. 
there are hundreds of thousands of deplatformings a day. So to explain each one uh, would take a tremendous amount of resources. Yeah. Uh, these cases went into the courts. Uh, in one case in Florida, they were enjoined by the district court. That case was upheld by the 11th Circuit, and that law is under a stay right now. In Texas, uh, the law was also enjoined, but the Fifth Circuit lifted the injunction hmm. that had to go to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court sent it back. Uh, the Fifth Circuit upheld the law in that case, but the Supreme Court blocked it based on appeal. So there were split circuits coming up to the court on whether or not uh, these laws were constitutional, and that kind of sets the stage for our conversation today. Indeed, indeed. Hmm. Well, Stephen Rohde, Texas and Florida argued that Internet providers should be thought of in the same way as, say, telephone companies, um, public utilities, public companies subject to regulation where free speech rights are concerned. Uh, instead of like private companies, you know, similar, like you said, to newspapers or private TV and radio stations, did that argument seem to carry much weight with the court? And please tell us your own view also about that question. The oral argument was quite lively and, and a range of views. Uh, sometimes these are devil's advocates. When the judges ask questions, those don't necessarily reflect their views. And we'll talk a little more about that later on. These cases were discussed with the background of some settled law that I think is important uh, for all of us to consider. Uh, back in 1974, uh, in a case called Miami Herald Publication versus Tornillo, uh, there was a Florida law that required newspapers to offer equal space to political candidates who wish to respond to election-related editorials or endorsements. The theory there was uh, newspapers make a choice, they put out an editorial or an endorsement, and this Florida law required the newspapers uh, to give equal space on their printed page to the political candidates. Well, the Supreme Court struck that down uh, unanimously. Uh, it said that this was an intrusion into the function of editors and that the exercise of editorial control and judgment must rest with the editors, not with the government. And I think on reflection, we would all appreciate that. A second case that was frequently cited in the oral arguments uh, was a case known as the Hurley case. It arose out of um, the St. Patrick's Day parade in Boston. Now, this is a private event. They decide what uh, bands to march in the parade, what floats to have, but a the Irish-American gay, lesbian, and bisexual group of Boston wanted to have a float in the parade. Now, on first blush, uh, we would support that. We'd want that viewpoint to be expressed. But what the court did, again, unanimously across the political spectrum, is they said that the parade had its own private message, that the First Amendment can decide uh, gives a right to choose what to say and not to say, and to force uh, these uh, this particular float into the parade violated the parade organizers' First Amendment rights. You know, we've talked on the show a lot. Sometimes the First Amendment is a bitter pill, but the neutrality of the First Amendment is what is important. So when you apply these doctrines and you use that model then you can see why Florida and Texas dictating to a social media site uh, what content it can and cannot post on its site uh, is a direct violation of the First Amendment. And the arguments seem to move uh, in that direction. And um, I think those are the fundamental uh, issues at stake. Mm -hmm. one, of the, one of the interesting things about the case I noticed myself listening to, to some of it, or reading the, and reading the transcript of some of it, um, that the questions that the uh, justices asked the lawyers for both Texas and Florida and for the U.S. government, and, and how they responded to how the attorneys answered those questions, 
uh, suggests, does it not, that the now familiar divide between the opinions of the liberal and conservative justice, well, might not hold true in how this case is decided. Now, you've made the point, Steve, that these are often hypothetical questions and what have you. But but a lot of people, wiser than myself, certainly, this have, have, have made that statement that uh, we may not get the typical six to three ruling here or whatever that we have come to sadly expect because of how political the court has become. Anyway, talk to us about uh, what may prove whether this may prove to be the case and what that might tell us. Yes, it really is a quandary because we see how sharply the court is divided on on so many issues. Yeah, but I must say, and this has been true for decades, really, uh, the First Amendment is an area in which the court, by and large, has found common ground. I think on the First Amendment. I think it's because the justices realize that if they went down the road of allowing censorship of of one viewpoint, uh, which they may politically like to censor, Mm. um, the uh, monster of censorship could turn around and censor views and political ideas that they favor. Uh, I think the First Amendment is based on the notion that uh, we should be very careful about punishing ideas we loathe because someday someone else in power could censor ideas we love. And so we saw that in the oral arguments uh, this week. Uh, remarkably, uh, and you uh, would never have anticipated you'd hear these words come from my mouth, but Brett Kavanaugh was a constitutional hero in this case. He was a First Amendment champion. Uh, He was one of the first justices to say that the word censorship, as used in the Texas law and as used in the arguments by the attorneys general of Texas and Florida, was a misnomer. Editorial judgment by a private publication, the New York Times, um, a bookstore that chooses what books to put on its shelves, a museum that chooses what paintings or uh, political material, theaters that choose what plays to produce and not produce, art galleries, concert halls that pick and choose music. Uh, It would be the end of creative freedom in America if state legislatures could pass laws uh, telling newspapers Uh, bookstores, museums, theaters, art galleries, that they must uh, include or not include particular works of expression. And that theme, uh, in my view, will carry the day in these cases. I do believe that the uh, two statutes uh, will be struck down. And I think, uh, and you're hearing it from Steve Rohde, Uh, on February 28, um, maybe unanimous decisions, just like those cases I told you about uh, in the Florida newspaper case and in the Boston parade case, uh, these might well be unanimous decisions. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Yes, and I do like your Brett Kavanaugh (laughs) uh, interpretation of or his uh, quoting him. Um, Please, Steve, let us know... um, there was some talk about how even if the main components would be, you know, a unanimous decision or if, you know, across the board, the justices agree uh, to most parts of the laws uh, or how they're going to uh, opine on these laws. Um, it, it seemed, for example, Justice Sotomayor hypothesized it might be okay to require a website to provide more transparency to its users or provide sufficient notice to users of changes in its policies, or there may be parts of these laws that are okay. Um, can you explain why that might be the case, and, and do you think we'll see any of that come out in their opinions? Yes. In two respects, it may not be an across-the-board a victory, in my view, for the First Amendment. In the first instance, Justice Alito and Justice Kagan suggested that the factual record in the case may not be complete enough 
that there are different websites and different situations, and they were suggesting that maybe the cases should be sent back to the lower courts for a more complete evidentiary record. Uh, I would regret that. I think the courts have ample material before them to, to decide these high-level uh, decisions uh, in terms of the First Amendment. But the second area comes into what our um, law school seminar here today uh, can understand. You challenge a statute either on its face or as applied. A facial challenge attacks the entire law under all possible circumstances. A facial challenge attacks it, I'm sorry, an as applied challenge attacks it only in the specific context of the case itself. So overriding, and I think what Justice Mayor was getting at and Justice Jackson, we do have anti-discrimination laws. And I think a state could pass a law that if a website was choosing its users and its uh, postings on uh, racially discriminatory terms, or we will only take Christians and not Jews. Uh, we will only take whites and not African Americans. If anything constituted invidious discrimination in the nature of what a site was posting, then you may have a serious question. Uh, and we may see some of the justices write concurring opinions to uh, elaborate on those points. This has come up in the past. Um, the court uh, was insensitive. It allowed uh, on religious beliefs in the uh, famous masterpiece cake case for a baker to discriminate against uh, someone, uh, a gay couple. It had another case last year on a website operator, uh, but it held back the question of whether these general anti-discrimination laws uh, can apply. So I do see the possibility of either a remand or some subtle differences uh, in some of the opinions of the justices themselves. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, also, uh, Steve, we've mentioned earlier Section 230 of the Federal Communications and Decency Act. Um, at present, under Section 230 of that act, Internet companies have been enjoying a, a rather high degree of protection against liability for what happens in response to something oh, particularly hateful or grossly misleading that appears on their sites and then someone takes action as a result of it and so forth. Uh, why, why does what the court decides in the case we're talking about now, the Texas and Florida case, uh, raise questions about how its ruling might impact protections under 230 of that act? Yeah, so this is another term I think well-informed People should know about Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. Uh, in the 1990s, it was the early days of the uh, birth of the Internet. Uh, there was a desire on the court to allow this new form of technology to grow. Uh, it was the hope of free and open communications and technical uh, uh, distribution of ideas and materials. So they passed Section 230. It said that an internet provider was uh, insulated from liability for defamation, copyright infringement, that with all of these billions of users, if someone posted something that was defamatory or uh, violated someone's copyright, that the uh, provider that was simply communicating the signal and distributing the message should not be liable for that content. Uh, and so 230, uh, largely in insulated Internet providers from those kinds of claims, uh, and I do think it gave uh, uh, the uh, industry a wide berth to grow and expand. Unfortunately, it is coming back to roost because uh, newspapers, for example, are responsible for defamation that is published in their pages. There may be certain standards that have to be met for public figures and the like. But so as much as we just discussed 
the social media sites aligning themselves with the newspaper model mm -hmm. when it comes to wanting to exercise their freedom of speech and not be subjected to government censorship. When the shoe is on the other foot, they want to be insulated from defamation and copyright infringement and these other uh, civil uh, actions. I think uh, the court ducked that issue uh, in the last term. They don't actually have to address that even in these cases. But I think they may be kicking the pan down the, uh, down the road by not really questioning Section 230. Now, there have been moves in Congress. It is, after all, a, a congressional act that can be amended by the Congress, and hearings have been held. There's some desire to, to shape Section 230, to qualify it. Uh, certainly, the mere broadcast of a message, uh, uh, the billions of messages that are communicated uh, cannot be the basis to sue uh, Twitter or uh, Facebook, uh, but perhaps to the extent that, that there has been direct involvement in the content of the speech in some way, uh, then that could be exposed to those types of lawsuits. Uh, it's another quandary, and I think uh, what we're seeing is a grappling with a new technology. Uh, we have an old First Amendment, uh, and uh, people like me believe we have a living constitution that is modified and grows with the time. Uh, TV was not mentioned in the Bill of Rights when James Madison wrote it, <laughs> but certainly today TV and, uh, and movies and now the Internet are protected by the First Amendment. So the court has the duty to navigate uh, through these uh, uh, difficult waters, uh, with the aid of, of good lawyers and uh, the public. And I think we're going to hear a lot more as we go forward of how to balance the legitimate right of these sites to uh, be a platform for wide open, robust free speech, but also if someone's um, reputation is injured or their copyright is violated, they do need and should have a remedy. So Steve Rohde, uh, I know we are running out of time, but I did want to get in one last question. Maybe you can just give us your opinion. Um, so it's been about 25 years since we've been grappling with legal issues about the Internet. Um, what are your thoughts? Do you think we have a good hold on, on that regulation yet? I do think the court is educating itself. Uh, I'm sure their children and grandchildren have told them uh, how to function on Instagram and uh, other media. Um, I think we're always trying to apply fundamental principles in new circumstances, and we have to look in each case to the values, uh, in this case of free speech, that we are uh, seeking to protect. And, and to close on where I began, in all of these instances, and, and the court must do this uh, as much as anyone, uh, we have to suspend our own political views, our own social and advocacy views, because sometimes free speech protects speech that is um, offensive, controversial, mm -hmm. uh, even hateful. Uh, in the large picture, it's the experiment that the First Amendment has launched for us. The United States has one of the most robust and wide open uh, systems of free expression compared to other countries. But we've seen in other countries, if you start to go down the slippery slope of censorship, you empower local school boards, state legislatures, and Congress uh, to dictate what people can say or not say then we're in troubled waters, and I, I hope and believe that, by and large, this court is staying away from that. Well, let's hope. Steve Rohde, uh, that's uh, been wonderful hearing from you on this. It's a lot clearer in my mind. Where, where can our listeners find your work? I mentioned where you publish and such, but remind us of that again if folks want to uh, hear more, read more of your writings and so forth. Well, you're very kind. I always say that uh, much of my writing is gathered at the Los Angeles Review of Books, where I'm a contributor. 
Uh, Truth Dig uh, is doing an extraordinary job of archiving uh, the works of their writers. Uh, I have several pages there on the Julian Assange case, mm -hmm. which you mentioned. And our good friends at LA Progressive are publishing a lot of my material on a regular basis. And uh, as far as I'm concerned, I'm going to uh, keep uh, exercising my free speech rights and uh, you'll hear more Absolutely. from me uh, in the weeks and months ahead. Well, and, and you're going to hear more from Steve from time to time on this show, I can assure you, because it's a pleasure to have you on. It clarifies often some not only very critically important questions, but a question. You know, most of our listeners, as I've said many times, uh, minds have not been, well, either warped or educated, depending on how you look at it, by going to law school. I mean, they're just plain folks, um, bright as can be, but uh, the law can be very... Uh, uh, thorny. And so, uh, Steve, it's always wonderful to have you on. You do a great job of explaining it. So thank you, Steve Rohde. We're going to now pause for a brief station ID, and then we'll be right back with you with uh, Mike Farrell, and we're going to be talking about some interesting aspects of what's going on with the death penalty in the south of our country. The first time I heard KBFK, it was in the wee wee hours, maybe 2 a.m., Roy of Hollywood was on, right? And he was playing Alan Watts. And it was so surreal. I was like, what is this? What is this? What kind of radio is this? You know, I mean, it just blew my mind. And I got hooked right away. KPFK. And we are right back with you as promised. You're listening to The Lawyer's Guild Show. I'm Jim Lafferty, and along with Maria Hall, we co-host this program every week. And in, a, in a, just about two minutes, we're going to be hearing from um, uh, Mike Farrell about uh, some interesting death penalty developments. and gives us a chance to talk about with Mike about the death penalty in particular. But um, I want to, before we start, we just have to do, take a couple of minutes to remind you that uh, we need your support. Or we, we simply can't do it without you. We don't get money from the government and we don't have, you know, um, our, uh, Archer Daniels Midlam on our air and all that kind of stuff. Uh, it's free speech radio, community radio, and we're beholden to no one but ourselves and to you if we're going to keep doing it. And and uh, so I wanted to mention to you, I think people will be, should be thrilled about this. Everybody remembers Blaise Bonpain, who was on this station for years. His wife, uh, Sister Rebel, is the title of her book, Teresa Khalid. Bonpain uh, is a wonderful activist for peace and social justice, and I might mention a dear friend of mine. Well, she's written a book, um, Sister Rebel, um, it's from Mary Noel Nun to Peace Warrior. Everybody doesn't know that she was a nun. Blaze was a priest, and uh, they finally left because what they wanted to do, the church wasn't about to tolerate at that time, and they went on to have these amazing lives. Well, her, her memoir, Sister Rebel uh, is is an extraordinary book. Uh, I, I, Noam Chomsky says, uh, once I opened the book, I couldn't put it down. Uh, Ron Kovic uh, talks about how it's a powerful and beautifully written memoir of an extraordinary life and times. Uh, it goes on and on. Uh, Martin Sheehan, well, Noam Chomsky, a, says a gripping account of dedicated service struggle and personal turmoil. Um, well, there you are. Um, and he couldn't put it down, as I said, once he started reading it. Well, for $75, this book is yours. And by the way, this is uh, we have about a dozen of them left. And this is a sign. These are all signed copies by Teresa Bumpain herself. Um, and and uh, so I really, anybody who's, who is interested in what has been going on in, in the peace movement and the social justice movement in Los Angeles in particular in the last you know, several decades really owes it to themselves to get this book. Um, it recounts a lot of that. It, I, I've been a part of that, and yet I learned a hell of a lot from reading this book that I didn't know, and I worked rather closely with uh, once sister Bonpain, but now for a long time, Teresa Colleen Bonpain. So please give us a call and and uh, say, uh, we'll say thank you by sending you this amazing book. Um, it's a good way to uh, remember, dear Blaze, uh, and uh, Teresa is still kicking and still fighting the good fight. 818 985-5735 is the way to do that. 818-985-5735 is the way to do that. And uh, maybe it's even easier for you, and you, you sort of miss less, less of the show because we're going to get started with it again, if you go to kpfk.org. 
our website, because there you'll find not only this offer of thanks when you donate to the station um, for $75, but many others. Uh, Less money, more money, what have you, depending on how... uh, how fat your wallet is these days, and perhaps you want to uh, give a little extra for those who can't. Um, anyway, 818-985-5735, or go to the website, please, and pick up a copy for $75, Sister Rebel, signed copy by Teresa Bond Payne herself, um, and uh, we will sure appreciate that. And we'll get, uh, we'll mention this again probably before the end of the show, but very briefly, uh, Maria, let's now introduce our next guest and topic, uh, because it's a big one, too. Thank you, Jim. Yes, we now turn to the subject of the death penalty in the United States. About two hours ago, the planned execution of death row inmate Thomas Creech in Idaho was thwarted because officials couldn't set his IV line to carry out the lethal injection. So I just imagine what he must be going through. Um, Idaho officials haven't yet announced what they intend to do going forward, but for now, the death warrant will expire and Mr. Creech will live to see another day. But meanwhile, in Huntsville, Texas, a man named Ivan Cantu is watching the clock. The government made an appointment to kill him by lethal injection in about 25 minutes from right now. Mr. Kantu continues to maintain his innocence of the crime for which he was convicted. In all, nine executions were set to take place in 2024. Of these, one already occurred in Alabama, where Kenneth Eugene Smith was killed by nitrogen gas on January 25th. People of conscience have long called for the abolition of the death penalty on the ground that it's discriminatory, cruel, and an abuse of government power. New statistics show a majority of Americans agree the process is unfair and inhumane. But 27 states, including California, haven't yet abolished the death penalty. This half hour, we're focusing in on a handful of states known as the Southern Death Belt. It's my pleasure to introduce our very special guest on this subject, President of the Board of Death Penalty Focus, Mike Farrell. Mike Farrell, welcome to the Lawyers Guild Show. Thanks very much, Maria. It's nice to be on with you guys. Great. Well, can you start us off? Um, Death Penalty Focus refers to a handful of states in the U.S. as the Southern Death Belt. Which states does it include in that category and why? Well, it's essentially the Old South. It's Southern states. It's uh, I tell you, it's curious that what is in some minds the Bible Belt, <laughs> Death Belt. Um, our organization, Death Penalty Focus, put out a news puts out a newsletter, the Focus, every uh, month, and the one that went out last week. All of the events we noted occurred in southern states, and that's not unusual. Uh, Death Penalty Inf- Information Center, DPIC, as it's known says that from the time executions resumed in 1977 through April 2022, 82% of all executions in the United States took place in the South. Mm. And from January 2015 through April 2020, just five states, Texas, which is the most egregious killer, Georgia, Alabama, Florida, and Missouri carried out 83% of all U.S. executions. Mm. Last year, Florida imposed five death sentences, Texas three, Alabama three, North Carolina two, and Louisiana one. So as to why the Bible Belt is the death belt, Brian Stevenson said that what's happening, or what's happened is that lynchings have moved indoors. Mm -hmm. I I trust you're familiar with Brian Stevenson. (laughs) Mm-hmm. Well, Mike, as Maria mentioned uh, today, two executions, uh, one took place, uh, uh, scheduled anyway, one in Idaho, one in Texas. But what can you tell us about these two prisoners' cases? Was anyone trying to postpone or stop the executions? Uh, and if so, on what grounds? Talk about these cases a bit. Sure. Um, obviously, any case we're in, we're talking about the immediate death of somebody at the hands of the state is awful. But I understand, and it's news to me, I'm gratified to hear that uh, the, the Creech execution has stopped. Is that true? Mm-hmm. At least he's got to stay. It yeah. is, uh, yes. I, I've been well, 
on it all day today, and I I was surprised, uh, pleasantly surprised to be able to report that. Yes, indeed. Well, I'm I'm pleasantly surprised to hear it. Mm. Uh, uh, Mr. Creech, Thomas Creech, has been on death row there for four decades. Um, Mm. uh, Ivan Cantu, who's on uh, death row in Texas, um, will... uh, will die today unless the state, uh, or, or either the state um, backs away from it, or the court intervenes, which doesn't look likely. Both the both men have been convicted of murder, Creech multiple murders. Uh, his attorneys have argued that the state has violated its own position, uh, his own post-conviction procedures, and that the execution should be stopped. Apparently, they've succeeded uh, at, in some way. Ivan Cantu has consistently proclaimed his innocence, and a lot of people believe that he is, in fact, innocent, but it appears the courts have not been responsive. Mm-hmm. Cantu has had a powerful campaign promoting his possible innocence, calling for a stay of the execution and a new trial. It's based on the recantation of the testimony of one of the prosecution witnesses and uh, apparent lying by another as well as the claim of that they've suppressed evidence by the, the evidence was suppressed by the prosecution, mm. and and this this campaign is sort of headed up by the uh, extraordinary sister Helen Prejean, who's been out front on on the Cantu case, as of course has the TCADP, the Texas Coalition to Abolish the Death Penalty, which is a wonderful, hardworking mm. group of caring and dedicated citizens. And Move On has a petition with around 150,000 signatures calling for the stopping of the execution of Ivan Cantu. We can, I guess, only hope and pray. Yes, yes, indeed. Yes, and and to clarify, when you do get the chance to to look at the Creech story, it was because the medical, uh, the people trying to set the IV weren't able to do it. <clears throat> so they finally oh, gave up, and the death warrant Jeez. is expiring. So we don't know. They haven't announced what they're going to do, if they're going to go forward with it another time. But I think there is a long line for that. Um, Let's talk about Louisiana. Uh, I understand their state legislature is trying to change some of the death penalty laws. Um, Why is that? And if successful, how will the law change there? Well, we'll see. After a Ten-year moratorium on the death, uh, Louisiana's former governor, John Bell Edwards, made uh, some late efforts to grant clemency to those on his death row, but they were too little and, as, as I said, too late. The new governor, Jeff Landry, is a, simply a killer, or should I say pro-death, and the legislature is moving some pretty ugly bills that will expand capital punishment methods, including the new toy for the killers, nitrogen gas, execution. Um, This legislation will also shield records related to executions from public view, and therefore hold in confidence the names of companies or pharmacies that provide execution drugs, keeping the procedure in the dark. You know, Mike, uh, it raises the next question we wanted to ask, because there there has been uh, a number of horrific stories about people trying to be executed only to uh, find themselves for some period of time in great anguish, but not dead, and doing it over and all that kind of stuff. Uh, there was at one point a, a shortage of a certain drug, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And in South Carolina right now, uh, maybe you could summarize the, the legal arguments heard by its Supreme Court last week about the methods of execution. Uh, that, as I say, has become more and more a topic of uh, of interest. Uh, and how do advocates expect the court to rule in that case? Well, that's, you know, that's, a, again, a question to be, to be determined by the advocate. Yeah, but... but, I guess, but uh, South Carolina, it's important to know, hasn't had an execution since 2011. Mm-hmm. Because of uh, difficulty obtaining lethal injection drugs. And there are four condemned human beings now challenging two of its execution methods, electrocution and the firing squad, as uh, unconstitutional. Current South Carolina laws, if you will, the condemned person to choose between electrocution, (laughs) the firing squad, and lethal injection. But the default, if he or she won't choose, is electrocution. And that makes South Carolina the only state today using electrocution as its primary method of 
legally killing people. <laughs> As a result of these men's lawsuit, a trial court issued an injunction against using electrocution or the firing squad because they qualify as cruel or unusual punishments. <laughs> but people have to understand that South Carolina's Constitution differs from the U.S. version, which forbids cruel and unusual punishments. Mm -hmm. South Carolina's law says that by no cruel nor corporal nor unusual punishment mm -hmm. may death be imposed. That allows the court to strike down an execution on the basis of any one of the three. And the arguments have been lengthy, needless to say. They, they required the state to defend the firing squad and ex electrocution as necessary or legal or appropriate, while the defense contended the opposite. Another aspect is South Carolina's apparent inability to secure the drugs necessary to use lethal injection, causing one judge to question that argument, which was being used to justify having electrocution as the fallback method. And that, you know, it gets into the issue of legitimate companies or pharmacies not wanting themselves or their products to be publicly associated with killing. Hmm. So they want everything to be done secretly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, boy. <laughs> yeah. And, and how do advocates expect the court to rule on, on these changes? Well, you know, uh, you'd have to talk to them. Yeah. <laughs> you, you, you make your arguments and you pray... You do whatever you can to back it up, but uh, South Carolina is South Carolina. <laughs> well, speaking of, of that kind of that heaviness of this topic, and uh, I do want to inject into our, I shouldn't say that, I want to add <laughs> into our discussion uh, why it's so important for people to stay informed about it. I know it's so tempting to turn the other way because it it is a very difficult subject. But talk to us, please, about uh, Robert Du Bois in Florida, um, who was exonerated recently and right. his recent civil court victory. Um, can you talk to us about, you know, what happens when somebody, when we do find, and I know that he's not the only one, um, that somebody was actually innocent and why it's so important for us to keep fighting for everyone on death row? Well, yes, I said that many people believe the uh, case of Ivan Cantu, who may die today, uh, is the killing an innocent man. Du Bois was um, convicted of rape and murder in Florida about 40 years ago. The jury recommended a life sentence, but the judge overrode the jury's decision and sentenced him to death. Florida was at that time one of only two states, and my, as I understand it, that still allowed what they called judicial override. The uh, conviction was based on bite mark evidence, which we think of today as junk science. Yeah. And the charge was amplified uh, evidently by a snitch or a jailhouse informant, which is also unreliable because the person providing the evidence is often doing so because he or she is getting a benefit for lying for the state. But finally, long uncovered evidence came to the surface, and after 37 years, DNA tests proved Robert Du Bois innocent of the crime for which he'd been sentenced to death. He was exonerated and released. Now, how do you, how do you repay somebody for yeah. having his life stolen by a shoddy investigation and a cruel judge? And in my view, how did... How, if he's still living, does that judge feel yeah. or, or his decision? My guess is he doesn't think much about it, but perhaps I'm being unkind. <laughs> Jim, you're not known to be unkind. Oh, okay, I'm sorry. <laughs> but damn it. But, it, you know, this business of the uh, people, the death row's exonerations, I think uh, the Death Penalty Information Center now credits about 194 uh, give or take a few people who have been tried, convicted, and sentenced to death for crimes they didn't commit. And only after years and years of struggle and f fighting on behalf of their uh, attorneys, and in some cases not attorneys, in some cases it's uh, mm -hmm. in some cases it's public, it's mm -hmm. public clamoring um, that causes enough re-examination re of a case to get somebody um, significantly uh, ex uh, case significantly examined and 
turned out to be a wrongful conviction. <laughs> you know, Mike, um, we, I, we have enough time for this, I think. Really, it it's, it's probably requires more, even more time than we have. But one of the things that um, I, I, there's both good news and bad news, I guess, how I want to start this off. It, it does seem to be that in much of the country, um, uh, the the, the uh, rather broad support for the death penalty has greatly diminished or diminished. Um, and, you know, uh, why do you think, number one, why do you think it has? But more importantly, perhaps, why do you think it hasn't? We know so much more now about innocent projects. We know so much more now about what uh, various uh, properly used scientific evidence can show. We know so much about the racism in the death penalty and the role that class plays in the death penalty and all of that. Why Why the devil is it that uh, despite the extraordinary worth of groups like uh, Death Penalty Focus, the, the group that you're, you're the head of right now and have been for so long, and, and many other fine groups, why is it, it it's not uh, been reduced to to the you know to notations about the barbary of old yet? Well, you know, Jim, I think I think the the progress we've made yeah. over so many years is really remarkable. Oh yeah. We have to you to cling to that. Oh no, yeah, and know it. I mean, when 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 we started in this business, um, there were twelve states that had death that didn't have the death penalty, mm. and the rest of them did. Today, there are twenty four states that have given up the death penalty, I believe, uh -huh. and another four that have moratoria, including our own state here. That's in right. Um, so. But that being the case, a majority of the states have indicated that they don't want to be in the killing business, and that's that's as a result of the good work of people like you and Joe mm -hmm. and the people that are out there in the in in these organizations like the Texas Coalition I mentioned, yes. the Virginia Coalition, and so many other good good groups that are doing the work of educating people to the point that, as I think Maria said at the up top, we now the death penalty is. Uh, disfavored by more people mm -hmm. than it's favored. Yes, and that is great. But the, but what what we suffer from today are a couple of things. One is apathy, mm. um, but the other is an, a, a Supreme Court that is inexcusably mm. corrupt, and in my view, inexcusably um, in pursuit of finality as opposed to justice. Mm. They don't want to hear these these uh, appeals that come up to them and they this particular court has just been hideously unresponsive to uh, these appeals of uh, long-time death row residents who've been trying to get justice and in fact mike just to interrupt you for a second the precedent at the moment is that innocence is is uh, innocence after the fact I mean, proven innocence after the fact is is in fact does not win you appeal on a death penalty. I mean, the, the Supreme Court has actually said that. Now, that's different than what the work of the Innocent Project when it gets new trials or the public clamors and, and, a, and a, a governor commutes somebody's sentence or something. But in fact, the court, not only is this court terrible, that court has been terrible for a long time, has it not? Yes, but it's worse. Oh, no, no that's true. Notably, oh, yeah. visibly worse oh, yeah. today has been. And so many things. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's really hideous as a result of the Trump appointments. Mm, mm, mm. But, but, you know, the, the, the struggle goes on, Jim, and, and it's oh, yeah. one that, that I think we will uh, eventually overcome. Now, I say that I met Justice Brennan many years ago, mm. and he said, uh, I'm afraid, he said, I thanked him for his opposition to the death penalty, mm -hmm. which is legendary. And I thanked him, and he said, "Well, uh, unfortunately, it will it will not end in my lifetime, but mm -hmm. hopefully, it will in yours." Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm trying to <laughs> you I'm gotta, trying to prove it true. <laughs> <laughs> well, I certainly wish you a long life. And, <laughs> I mean, if that'll help. But no, no, and I know I I know I, I may sounded a little negative before. I certainly don't mean to be because I mean there was a point in my life, and perhaps in yours too, where I thought it was rather hopeless. And uh, yeah. and people did come around, and and uh, you know you talk about what little bit we do here for it. I mean, everybody knows about the work that you and and so many people like you have done. 
Uh, it's extraordinary. And uh, there, once upon a time, there weren't so many people speaking up. There weren't so many people who were willing to, to buck, which was often some rather hostile uh, opposition to what they were trying to do. Uh, and so there's every reason to be optimistic. Um, and, and I hope you live long enough, uh, and me too, and Maria, uh, so that uh, we can watch that happen in our lifetime. And just seeing it diminished as much as it has, and I'm glad you pointed that out, um, yes. has been encouraging in and of itself and, and makes us feel a little bit better, doesn't it? Sure. I mean, even the state of Oklahoma. Yeah. Killer is Go figure. Yeah. Taking a look at the possibility of doing what I, definitely. Uh, Ohio has an active active effort going on in the, in the uh, <laughs> sorry, I no, I hear your phone ringing. That's okay. Uh, because we do have to go anyway and spend a few minutes here raising some money. But um, how, do, uh, how do people get, uh, de- what, where do they go, deathpenaltyfocus.org? Tell people how to follow the work here in California because there's no state, uh, no organization that I'm aware of doing any more than Death Penalty Focus has done and continues to do. Thank you. So how might, how might people uh, find that? Um, uh, you can, they can find us by, uh, by going to deathpenalty.org. Deathpenalty.org. On All the right. Web. Or Death Penalty Focus. Um, we're in, our office is in Sacramento. Yep. Uh, near, near the, near the makings of government, the me- mechanics of government. Uh-huh. Um, and, uh, but I, I, I'd like to back up just a minute sure. and say, you know, people need to, to know, to read, to listen to shows like yours, to look at what's happening in the world today. Mm-hmm. But you said some important things. You said it's racist. I think uh, uh, Maria may have said it's expensive. Oh. Uh, the fact is, <clears throat> it's, we know it's killing innocent people. It doesn't deter it. We found that out. And, and it certainly doesn't deter any, no. anything. But what what people don't seem to understand is something that one of the initial signers of the Declaration of Independence, mm. um, a man by, by the name of Jeremy Rush, said uh, he was a psychiatrist and a, a proponent of uh, the Pennsylvania prison system. <clears throat> Excuse me. He said uh, he opposed death penalty, the death penalty, because it brutalizes everyone mm-hmm. associated with it. Mm-hmm. It brutalizes not only the killed person who's being killed, but the executioner, but the judge, the jury, the group of people who have been responsible for the conviction, and the community that allows it. So that's all of us. Yeah. And I think it's true. I think we, we need to understand that we are being brutalized by this process. Oh, yeah. And that, and that doing away with it will lift a heavy load off our shoulders, heavy moral load off our shoulders. It has a ripple effect when you get rid of it. Absolutely. Uh, you begin to look at a lot of other things, too. And, and your point about how it, what it does to people, it wasn't it just a few years ago, I've lost track of time, where the uh, director of Death Penalty Focus here in California was the former warden, was she not? That's right, yes. Jean Woodford was our executive director for uh, a while. Yeah. Uh, and she was, you know, she had presided over four executions. Yeah. So she understood. Yeah. She understood the danger and the damage that's done. Frank Thompson, who did the same thing in, in Oregon, ah. has become an out, uh, outspoken opponent of the death penalty. Uh, Jerry Givens, the man who was the executioner in, um, in Virginia, has become uh, an outspoken opponent of the death penalty. Wonderful. I'm just getting the high sign. I'm so sorry, Mike. I'm <clears throat> getting the high sign from our engineer that we got about sure. 30 okay. seconds to say goodbye. So goodbye, Mike Farrell, and thank you, thank you so much for your work and for joining us here, of course, on the Lawyers Guild Show, and we'll, we'll follow along with this story, my friends. We do have about 30 seconds left, so remember, Sister Rebel, Teresa Colleen, Bon Payne's book, Once a Nun and then uh, one of the great champions outside of the nunnery, along with Blaise Bon Payne, of course, who we remember here at KPFK, 50 years on the air here at KPFK. You can get this book for $75. Oh, there's all sorts of lesser uh, things you can get for lesser money and more money. Go to our website, kpfk.org, my friends. Support us, support us, support us, please. We do need your help. Uh, you don't hear what you heard today on this show on many other outlets in the media, so we think that's kind of special. And if you do, 
keep supporting it with your with your donations. Uh, join if you're not yet a member. Please join so you can vote in our elections and everything else. Well, on text next week at the same time, Maria, we're we're done for now. And on behalf of Maria Hall and myself, we thank all who listened today and all who may have contributed and all who will yet contribute. Until next week at the same time, and this is Jim Lafferty saying, "Hey, stay healthy." Stay active and stand up for your rights, my friends. Stand up, stand up. Don't give up the fight. Preacher, don't tell me heaven is on the earth. I know you don't know what life is really worth.